Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Before we start today's podcast episode, I just want to say two things. First, if you notice that the quality is a little lower quality than it usually is, that's because I'm having to use the internal microphone in my laptop. Um, I noticed when I first started recording, I use Audacity, that I was getting nothing but static. Um, well, actually, first I noticed how gigantic the weight, the audio wave forms were in Audacity, and I thought the problem was that I just needed to, re- to turn my recording volume down, but as it turns out, um, some, something's wrong. When I listened to the playback, I heard just a whole bunch of loud static, so I don't know if something is wrong with my microphone or if something is wrong with my, um, audio converter, because, you know, I have a MacBook now, and I have this converter that I have to plug in, um, there's no, uh, there's no microphone jack like there was on my Acer. On this MacBook, there's only a headphone jack, so I have to use a converter that has an earphone jack and a microphone jack, and both need to be plugged in in order for me to get audio. And I just don't know, <clears throat> I don't know what's going, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if something's wrong with the microphone. I don't know if something's going on, if something is wrong with the converter. Or if maybe if something's wrong with the headphones. Um, but I decided that I would just use the internal microphone for today's episode. It's not going to be that big of a deal. I prefer to use... A microphone to get more professional sounding quality, but it is what it is. Second thing I want to talk about is why there was no podcast episode last week. The reason why there was no podcast episode last week was simply because I I have the podcast equivalent of writer's block. I, have, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had no idea what I was going to talk about today until just a few moments ago. And I had the idea, and I thought I would just go for it. So, there you go. Now, also, before we get started, I'd like to alert the listeners to some of the things that I'm going to be planning on doing for Cerebral Faith in the near future. As you know, I've been studying a lot about the primeval history, Genesis 1-11. to That's what scholars refer to as the primeval history period of the Bible. And I've been doing that in preparation for two things. First, I have an upcoming live stream YouTube series on the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel in which I'm going to be giving a presentation on how I think is the best way to exegete Genesis chapters 1 through 11. I'm going to be talking about uh, the Cosmic Temple inauguration um, interpretation in the first part 
Uh, I'm going to be defending the functional or the, the, the view that Genesis 1 is not about material origins, but it's about functional origins. When it says that God creates everything, he's assigning functions to everything that is mentioned in the text. And this is supported both from within the Bible and from the ancient Near Eastern cognitive environment. And secondly, Genesis 1 is about God taking seven days to inaugurate the universe as his cosmic temple. And thirdly, I think... There are clear examples of the author taking jabs at his pagan neighbors, uh, the pagan creation myths of that day. That's going to be the view I'm going to be defending in part one. And, of course, if you've read all of my papers on CerebralFaith.net on Genesis 1-11, to or if you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you, you know my positions on this. But I decided it was time to put some stuff up on the YouTube channel. So it's going to be live. I'm going to be using StreamYard and I'm going to be using Google Slides. So it's going to be kind of like a, it's going to be kind of like listening to a monologue podcast episode. It's not going to be scripted, and but. You're going to be able to see slides and pictures and visuals, and you're going to be able to see text on the screen, and you're going to be able to see me, and you're going to be able to interact um, live. And actually, since I release these podcasts on Saturday, that should be this afternoon. But also, I am hoping to eventually write a book about the primeval history period. Um... I don't know when I'll get to write the book. I want to do as much research as possible because this is by no means an easy part of scripture. There's so many different, you know, as I as I like to say sometimes tongue in cheek, there's a the parts of the Bible that have the most debate are the beginning of the world and the end of the world. The beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. Creation and eschatology, they have the most they they have the most widely divergent interpretations everything in between you have a you have fewer options theologically so i don't know i've already written the introduction to that book i in google docs i don't know when i'm going to write the first chapter and beyond um i want to wait for william lane craig's book the quest for the historical adam before i uh, write the Adam and Eve section. Of course, I, I don't think I'm going to diverge very much from the, um, you know, the John Walton view, the view that John Walton puts forth in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, in, insofar as interpreting Genesis 2 and 3, and Genesis 3, I'm also, I've also um, been influenced by Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, but uh, I do want to have a chapter on the... The conversation between the Bible and science. When did Adam live? Who was Adam? How do we, you know, think about Adam and Eve? Was Adam even a Homo sapien, or was he like William Lane Craig wants to argue, Homo heidelbergensis? I wanna, I wanna read that before I, you know, because I may want to include a chapter on that. So, what else have I got planned for cerebral faith? Um, currently that's, that's about it.
Um, that's about it that I have planned for the near future. Um, I'm going to be doing these live streams on the Primeval History uh, every Saturday afternoon. I really hope that you can uh, tune in live so you can leave your questions in the live chat. I will. Uh, each of the presentations will be about an hour long, and then after that, uh, I'll have about 30 minutes of Q&A. But that's enough about the introduction. To let's let's get to today's topic. Today, um, I have been inspired to write about this because currently, what I'm doing a little bit of study on, and this also pertains to the primeval history book, because a couple of chapters I, I talk about in the process of inspiration, how we got the Bible, uh, hermeneutics, and and. Uh, what it means for the Bible to be inerrant and what counts as an error, and so I'm doing some I'm doing some study on the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of inspiration, inerrancy, um, and uh, recently I've read Inspiration and Incarnation by Peter Inns, which is a very it's a fantastic book on the doctrine of Scripture, on the doctrine of inspiration. Um, I have a, I've left a pretty thorough, not a, not a completely thorough review, but a somewhat in-depth review on the Cerebral Faith website about Peter Enns's book, Inspiration and Incarnation. And I also read, um, Defining Inerrancy by Nick Peters and J.P. Holding. And next, next, I'm going to read John Walton's The Lost World of Scripture. It's the only book in John Walton's series that I haven't read yet. I've read The Lost World of Genesis 1, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, The Lost World of the Flood, and The Lost World of the Torah, but I haven't read The Lost World of Scripture. And I haven't read The Lost World of Canaanite Conquest either, but The Lost World of Scripture is all about, you know, the doctrine of Scripture, inspiration, incarnate, you know, inspiration inerrancy, and, and, you know, stuff. Uh, and after that, I, I'm going to read, I think, the four views, or the five views on inerrancy. And so the doctrine of scripture, and the doc, you know, what it means, how we got the Bible, the theories of inspiration, uh, what it means for the Bible to be inerrant, and so on. That's what I'm currently doing uh, some research on so that I can be really completely informed when I devote two whole chapters to that in uh, the book that I will someday write, which actually has to do with the primeval history, but based on some of the views I take regarding Genesis 1-11, to I think it's important to address the inspiration and inerrancy issue first, because I know a lot of Christians are going to be, they're going to be very, very uncomfortable with some of the things that I say. Of course, if you're familiar with the blog posts and the podcast, uh, you already know where I stand on inspiration and inerrancy and how I interpret Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on. But that ins that's inspired today's topic, which is Bible contradictions. Do the Bibles, con do the Bible, con why can't I talk today? Does the Bible contain errors? Obviously, uh, uh, pretty much every skeptic in the world would say, yeah, the Bible contains errors. It's just riddled with contradictions and historical mistakes and, 
just, you know, it's, it's got so many problems. And unfortunately, even some Christians uh, have bought into this idea that the Bible contains errors, that it contains contradictions. Now, here's my view of inerrancy in a nutshell. The Bible is inerrant in everything that it intends to teach. The Bible is inerrant in everything that it intends to affirm. So if the Bible intends to teach something, then that's true, and we should we are obligated to believe it. Now, of course, the way that this is framed implies that there are some things that the Bible contains that it does not intend to teach. So, for example, if you've if you've read my uh, ancient Near Eastern blog posts or, or podcast episodes, you'll know that I am in agreement with Old Testament scholars who say that the the Bible contains what I like to call dome cosmology, that you just find all over the biblical text, the Bible talking about a solid dome sky uh, that has that is suspended over a flat earth, a, a round flat earth, that's a disk, that has mountains or other pillars holding it up, the, the solid dome sky has cosmic waters above it that some you know, that um, the, the solid dome keeps from coming down, and the solid dome has windows that sometimes open and close in order to that that's how weather works in the ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Let's it lets rain down, and uh, you there's a whole bunch of Bible verses that uh, that go to make up this picture, and I won't get into those now. That would take a podcast episode all on its own. Um, Brian Gadawa has a whole a very good chapter on this in his book, uh, When Giants Were Upon the Earth. Uh, ben Stanhope, who I recently had on the podcast, also talks about this in his book, Misinterpreting Genesis, How the Creation Museum Misunderstands the Ancient Near Eastern Context of the Bible. Um... And uh, Peter Enns, I think, also talks about it in Inspiration and Incarnation. So, is the Bible in error when it says that the firmament is firm, the sky is solid? We, we know there's nothing solid up there. We've sent, men, we've sent men to the moon, for Pete's sake. Well, no. And I'm going to be talking about this, uh, I guess, later this afternoon, if you're listening to this, if you're not a patron. Um... Genesis, Genesis 1, for example, mentions the firmament, but it's not intending to teach us that there is a solid dome sky. What Genesis 1 is intending to teach us is that there is that God set up the function of the weather system. I'm trying to pull up Genesis 1 here so I can... Read the verse, and you'll probably hear me typing. Um, and, and God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. So, the text says, God said, let there be a vault or a firmament between the waters to separate water from water. That's the ocean waters from the waters above the firmament. What, what scripture is teaching here is that God created the function of the weather system. 
however that's to be understood. Now, he accommodated to the ancients' understanding by saying, by talking about it in this dome cosmology thing. And by the way, this is not just, as some evangelicals like to fault scholars with, this is not just taking poetic verses out of the Psalms and the Proverbs and Job and, and taking them overly literally and painting a picture that the biblical authors didn't hold. You can. There are literally iconogra iconographic. There's iconography from other ancient civilizations of the world that looks just like this. Authors like uh, Brian Gadawa and Ben Stanhope actually have pictures of these engravings and these these paintings on stone from these ancient civilizations where they ha held this kind of cosmology. Now, of course, it, it differed from from uh, from culture to culture in certain ways. You know, there was debate about what the sky was made of, and, uh, of course, Israel, where, you know, polytheistic, their neighbors, Israel's neighbors believed that there were many gods running the show. There were many gods running the universe. There was a, go there was a god, Shu, who held up the sky, but for Israel, there was only one god who governed the universe that was Yahweh. So there, there's differences, but there's way, there's the similarities that Israel's cosmology had with her ancient Near Eastern neighbors. There's a lot more. They have a lot more in common with each other than any of them do with our cosmology, with a round Earth um, circling the sun, the sun being 93 million miles away, um, part as part of a galaxy, and that galaxy is a part of a billion other galaxies. Genesis one is not in error because. It's not affirming that there's a firmament up there. It's affirming that God created the weather system. And this is how they would have understood it. They would have understood the weather system as God making a... a, a they, understood the we, they understood the firmament as being essential to the weather. When it rained, the windows opened and let rain down. And when it stopped raining, that means that the windows closed back up. Now, we, of course, would understand it in terms of cumulus clouds and, and, you know, other modern meteorology, but the theological truth that is being conveyed in this chapter has not been invalidated by science, namely that God set up the weather system for us. And, and the same goes for the rest of the chapter. So I believe the Bible is inerrant in all that it intends to teach. I believe Genesis 1 is inerrant from start to finish. It's scientifically absurd, but science is not the point. Genesis 1 is telling a completely different story than, say, the origin of species. So in a nutshell, I mean, it, there, there, there could, there's a lot that could be unpacked than simply that one statement, the Bible is inerrant and all that it affirms. But this will hopefully, uh, hopefully at least give you an idea of where I stand on the issue of inerrancy. I've looked at the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. I agree with like 99% of the uh, affirmations and denials. So let's get to the actual um, accusations, the actual um, allegations that there are, you know, specific examples of alleged contradictions. Now, of course, I won't be able to bring up every single contradiction every skeptic has ever brought up. I mean, for, P uh, for Pete's sake, Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe has, have like 
an 800-page book dedicated to these called the Big Book of Bible Difficulties. But these are just going to be an example uh, that's going to fill the rest of the episode. So, <clears throat> the first example I want to talk about is, uh, did Jesus command his followers to hate their family or to love their family? The skeptic would say the Bible contradicts itself on this matter. Why? Because 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. But, Luke chapter 14, verse 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his brothers, he cannot be my disciple. So which one is right? Is 1 John 3.15 right or Luke 14.26 right? They can't both be right. You either are commanded to hate your brother or you're commanded to not hate your brother. You're condemned if you hate your brother. Okay, so we've got a contradiction here. The Bible is not inerrant. Well, <laughs> the first time, <clears throat> the first time I read Luke fourteen twenty six, I knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. This is actually one of the easiest to resolve uh, alleged contradictions. Um, First, we need, we need to remember the hermeneutical principle of interpreting unclear verses of Scripture in light of the clear. Given the Bible's powerful emphasis on love, this single verse of the Bible should be read in light of the truckload of love passages. A basic biblical hermeneutic is to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, to interpret unclear passages of Scripture in light of the clear passages. And the Bible teaches very clearly that anyone who has hatred in their heart isn't a true Christian. The Bible teaches that hatred is an evil characteristic of a human heart. The Apostle John uses some pretty damning language about people who have hatred in their hearts. He says that anyone who has hatred in their hearts is a murderer at heart, and no murderer has eternal life in him. He also says that those who are walking in hatred are walking in darkness. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9-11 to says, quote, If anyone claims I am living in the light, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness. If anyone loves another brother or sister... He is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates another brother or sister is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. End quote. 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15 says, quote, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. End quote. First John chapter four verse twenty says, quote, if, it, "If someone says, "I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see?" End quote. Obviously, if you carry hatred in your heart, you are not saved. If you have hatred in your heart, you're a murderer at heart who does not have eternal life in him, 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. You're walking in darkness, 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. And you're a liar when you tell God that you love him, 
1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Given this, we shouldn't expect Jesus to be advocating something that would bar someone from eternal life. Elsewhere, Jesus himself advocates the most extreme form of love imaginable, love for one's enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 44, Jesus says, quote, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. End quote. And in Luke's parallel account, in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, Jesus says, quote, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from, give, uh, from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not b demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, what, should you, what credit should you get? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." End quote. These are just a small sampling of the biblical passages telling us to love one another. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. See Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 39, Mark chapter 12, verses 30 to 31, and Luke chapter 10, verse 27. And we're to go so far as to love our enemies. Luke 14:26 is the only place that seems to suggest hatred, a, a command to hate people. But I can pull out a, a few dozen Bible passages suggesting the opposite. Given the numerous places in Scripture that command us to love, we should interpret Luke 14.26 in light of all of these. Whatever Luke 14.26 means, it cannot mean that we should hate family members. Now, but that still doesn't resolve the surface-level contradiction. <coughs> it only alerts us that maybe we went wrong in misinterpreting Luke 14.26. The, the other Gospels and translations render Jesus' saying differently. Matthew's Gospel and different translations of Luke 14.26 render Jesus' saying differently, and thus makes the meaning of what Jesus said much clearer. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 says, quote, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. End quote. 
Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying that if you love anyone more than you love him, you're not worthy of being called his disciple. The New Living Translation, uh, which is a, a dynamic equivalence translation or, or a thought-for-thought -thought translation, it renders Jesus' saying in Luke 14.26 as this, quote, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. End quote. So what is Jesus saying? He's not saying we should hate our family members. He's telling us that our love for him should be so great, so extreme, so immense, that our love for our family members seems like hatred when when compared. Our love for our family seems like hatred when it's compared with our love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus Christ should be so extreme that it looks like we hate everyone else in comparison. <clears throat> now, that's one... That's one solution. The solution is just simply one by comparison. Others people have said that uh, you, you know they, they point to places in the Bible where uh, hatred is actual love and hate are actually used idiomatically to mean uh, favored. You have or a priority. You have favor on one and you don't have favor on the other. And that would make sense in this context. Jesus is saying you should prioritize following me, the God-man, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, uh, over, uh, over your family. And, uh, I mean, we, we see that in the gospel where someone says, Jesus, let me follow you, but first let me go bury my, uh, my father. He just died. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Um, don't prioritize family over me. <clears throat> Another example, uh, very. This this one is um, very common. Is the ale the allegation that the Bible teaches both that we're saved by faith alone and we're saved by works. Ephesians chapter two verses eight to nine says, "For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God." not of works, lest any man should boast, end quote. So the Bible teaches we're saved by faith alone. We're not saved by good works. You can do all the good works that you like, and you're not going to earn your salvation. And if you could earn your salvation by works, you would have a reason to boast. But you're not. Or are we? James chapter 2 verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 2 verse 17. So, which one is it? Paul said we're not saved by works, and yet James does. I would suggest that James said nothing of the sort. I would suggest that James said those who are truly born again will produce the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. I would argue that if you take James, if you take that verse in context, you come out with a very different picture. Um, it Somewhat recently, I remember a meme uh, posted in the Capturing Christianity discussion uh, group, and it had a, a picture of this guy from the office, 
and it's captioned St. James, and he's saying, A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wait, wait, I worry about what you just, I worry what you just heard was, works are just a proof of saving faith. What I said was, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I commented, well, I heard that because I read you in context. That's what I commented. And someone responded to my comment saying, and how does the context change the meaning of you are not justified by faith alone? If someone said, I did not go to the store alone, I went with my best friend Tom, what context can change the meaning to the store alone? And here's what I said in response. I said, Anyway, the real, the real issue here is, what does justified mean? You have to be justified before someone. Who are we justified before on the basis of our works? God? Well, first, let's interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, Romans chapter 4, and Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 rule that out. The context seems to indicate that the justification is before man. And keep in mind that words can carry different meanings in different contexts depending on how you use them, and even on who uses them. It seems Paul is using justified in a legal sense. You're justified before the judge, God, on the basis of your faith, the faith you received by grace through faith and which is not of yourself. James seems to be using it in the sense of self-vindication, or giving epistemological justification for the assertion, I have faith. So you can justify that statement, i.e. back it up, by your works. Let's look at the passage again. Quote, and this is James chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Quote, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me Show me your work, uh, show me your faith without your works. This is what James is saying. James is saying, show me, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that man is justified by works, and not by faith only." End quote. So, James says, if someone comes along and says, I have faith, how will you know it's genuine? James challenges his reader, show me your faith without any works. Show me you're different from the devil. Come on. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. This is why I and many other biblical interpreters think James is using justification in the sense of justifying an assertion like how philosophers define knowledge as justified true belief. If one were to have justified true belief that one has saving faith, how are they going to know without some evidence? And what is that evidence? What evidence could you give that you have true faith in Jesus? Works. James says, faith without works is dead. Why? 
Well, consider a fruit tree. A fruit tree is supposed to produce fruit. If it doesn't produce fruit, and yet it's supposed to, a good conclusion is that it's probably dead. Likewise, someone who has truly come to faith in Christ will do good works. We see this in other places in the Bible. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, quote, If you love me, you will obey my commandments, end quote. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, which says, quote, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, end quote. So, there's no contradiction here. We are justified legally we are declared we are declared guiltless before god our sins are washed away we are regenerated born again and we are in right standing with god on the basis of faith alone but we can't show that faith we can't justify our assertion that we have saving faith to other people unless we do good works uh, you know, otherwise we we can't. Otherwise, people won't be able to distinguish us from the devil, who also believes God exists and uh, and that and that Jesus rose from the dead and and so on. <coughs> Let's move on to another alleged contradiction. This is contradiction is between Matthew chapter twenty verses twenty to twenty one and Mark chapter ten verses thirty five to forty. Um, Matthew chapter 10 verses, I mean, I mean, Matthew chapter 20 verses 20 to 21 and Mark chapter 10 verses 35 to 40, uh, seem to say different things. One passage says that it was James and John that asked Jesus if they could sit at his right or left side of Jesus's throne. The other suggests that it was James, uh, it was their mother who, who went and asked Jesus that. So which is it? Did, G did James and John's mother go and ask Jesus, uh, will you let my son sit at your right hand or on your left hand, uh, left hand side on your throne? Or did James and John themselves go and ask that? It seems to me that James, John, and the mother were all essentially essentially making the same request. It's difficult to know who actually spoke the specific words in question, because like any other dialogue, sometimes somebody speaks a word for you. There might also be the possibility that the mother asked, and then immediately after, her kids asked. The conclusion drawn would be that the mother tried to speak for her kids, and that her kids, really wanting Jesus to know that it was their desire then immediately asked after, uh, before Jesus could get a word in. This might imply that Jesus was intensely contemplating on how exactly to respond to the mother's request or, um, or waiting for her children to speak all along. Let's go to another alleged contradiction, and that is uh, James chapter 1, verse 13, and the doctrine of the deity of Christ. We've got a verse go butting up against a whole doctrine. This one was brought to me by a Christadelphian several years ago. Uh, Christadelphians are a heretical religious group that disbelieve in the deity of Jesus. And to argue against the deity of Jesus, he appealed to James chapter 1, verse 13. I, I also have had Muslims appeal to James 1, 13 as well. Uh, what does James 1, 13 say? It says, 
And remember, when you are tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone. Or some translations say, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Just So, what's the problem here? Well, if you've read the Gospels, Jesus was tempted. Matthew chapter 4. Um, Matthew chapter 4 has a whole bunch of temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Not only that, but Hebrews chapter 4, for Hebrews 4.15 says, quote, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin, end quote. But this contradicts the biblical, ta allegedly, that Jesus is God. I mean, I had a... I had two whole episodes in which I defended from the Bible the deity of Christ. A uh, couple passages are John chapter 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, although God is not, uh, Jesus is not the same person as God the Father. God is one what, but three who's, one being, but three persons, which make up that one being. Um, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 prophesies that the Messiah would be God. Isaiah 9 6 says, quote, For to us a child is born, to us a, a, a son is given, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3, very, in, in no uncertain terms, it says, Quote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now I actually don't like this translation. I, I think, it, and any, any commentary will tell you this. What that word dwell, uh, dwelling place, made his dwelling, actually means is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The presence, just uh, in the Old Testament, the presence of God would come. Uh, he came into the tabernacle and dwelt and dwelt with the people of Israel. Well, now, you know, in, in this New Testament era, God has a human body as his tabernacle. So I, I think more. I think more translations should tabernacled is not a word, but I think I think they should put it in there anyway. That's just that's a rabbit trail. Um, anyway, Hebrews one, Colossians chapter one verses fifteen to seventeen, um, very very explicit. And even in Mark's gospel, as I point out at the end of my uh, the case for the resurrection of Jesus YouTube series. Mark's Gospel actually has one of the most explicit statements of the deity of Christ that there is when Jesus says, you will see I am the Son of God and the Messiah, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds of heaven uh, in Mark 14 at his trial before Caiaphas. Uh, you could go check out the earlier podcast episodes, and you could check out, um, you could check out that YouTube video to see why I believe that that is one of the most blatant assertions of the deity of Christ. Ironically, in what most scholars consider the earliest gospel, um, and <laughs> ironically what most critical scholars say has the lowest Christology. I, I don't think that's true when you understand 
the Old Testament background and what and you carefully analyze Jesus's words. So check out that video, um, and also check out episode 87 of the Cerebral Faith Podcast, Does the Bible Teach That Jesus is God? And also episode 88, Does the Bible Teach That God is a Trinity? But anyway, how should we handle this contra- this alleged contradiction? If Jesus is God, as these passages, and a, you know, a whole bunch of passages say, how can Jesus be tempted in Matthew 4, and yet James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted? Well, there's a couple of ways that I would answer this. There's a couple of ways to solve the problem. The first one that I ever thought of was this. Um, One way we think about temptation is as being a strong urge to do something we know we ought not do, whether that be to commit a sin or to eat the cake when we're on a diet or whatever, you know, whatever. It's a, it's a strong, it, we, we, we have a desire, we have an urge to do something, and we know we're not supposed to do it. But there's another sense in a in way a person can be tempted. A person can be tempted to do something even if they don't feel the urge to commit the act. Let me, let me, give an example to explain what I mean. I can tempt you to eat ice cream, to eat an ice cream cone that I'm, I'm holding in my hand. You're, maybe you're on a diet. Maybe you're a diabetic and you, you can't eat sugary stuff. And so I, let's say I, I'm trying to persuade you with my words to do the thing I want you to do. Now, Maybe you don't like ice cream for whatever reason, or maybe you don't like the specific flavor I'm offering to you. And you don't have you have no urge whatsoever to take the ice cream from my hand and start licking it. Nevertheless, I am tempting you regardless. I'm tempting you regardless of whether or not you feel any compulsion to take the ice cream cone from my hand and eat it. In the same way, I think God can be tempted in that sense, there's nothing... God can be tempted in the sense that someone can try to persuade him to do something that they want him to do. But God cannot be tempted in the sense of feeling the urge to do evil. Satan tempted Jesus in the sense of trying to persuade him to do sin. But Satan did not tempt Jesus in the sense of getting Jesus to feel an urge to do sin. Jesus may not have felt an urge to commit sin, but Satan nevertheless did his best to smooth-talk him into breaking his fast and testing God by throwing himself off of the uh, off of the cliff, or uh, no, out, off of the, the roof of the temple. The law of non-contradiction, one of the laws of logic, tells us that two opposing statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense and in the same way, but... Two opposing statements can be true at different times, in different senses, and in different ways. For example, I'm pregnant and I'm not pregnant cannot both be true at the same time, but I'm pregnant can be true at one time during the pregnancy, and I'm not pregnant can be true at another time after the baby is born. So they both can be true, just not at the same time. Two opposing statements can also be true as long as they're true in different senses. For example, um, I'm knowledgeable and I'm ignorant can both be true at the same time if they're true in different senses. For example, I'm knowledgeable when it comes to the Bible, but I'm ignorant when it comes to knowing how to build a computer or fix a car. 
However, the statements, I'm knowledgeable and I'm ignorant, cannot both be true when referring to my knowledge of the Bible, because then it would be a contradiction. In the same way, the statements, God was tempted and God cannot be tempted, can both be true as long as the two statements mean different things. You know, that is, God can be tempted in the sense that someone can try to persuade him to do something. Come on, God, please, do this, come on, come on. Jesus, come on, break your fast. If you're really the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Uh, but God cannot be tempted in the sense that he feels the urge uh, to do what someone's trying to get him to do. That's the first way to resolve this contradiction. That's the first possible way. A second possible way is that James is not thinking of Jesus. He's thinking of God the Father. William Lane Craig, in his Defenders class, during his, I think it's either the Doctrine of the Trinity or the Doctrine of Christ section, um, he, he notes that in the New Testament era, you know, before the Trinity was well established, <coughs> of course, they, you know, the, the Jews did have that two powers in heaven thing, but in order to try to, conf to avoid conflating the persons of God the Father and God the Son, they would often reserve the G word, God, for the Father, and they would talk about the divinity of Jesus in various other ways without calling him God. Of course, there are exceptions like John 1 and Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, but most of the time they would, for example, they would take titles or phrases from the Old Testament that were applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament, and they would apply those terms to Jesus. That's, for example, um, and so what we might have here is Jesus just, is James just talking about the Father. The Father cannot be tempted, but maybe the Son could be tempted being incarnate. The Father is not incarnate, the Holy Spirit is not incarnate, the Son was incarnate, and that, that kind of takes, that kind of takes me far afield from what I'm talking about here, um. William Lane Craig and Tim Stratton both have some... That's my phone. Uh, they both have uh, some good articles on whether or not Jesus was truly tempted or whether he felt the temptation. So, let's go to another alleged contradiction. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4, and Proverbs chapter 26, verse 5. In the book, oh, wait a minute, um, by the way, I, I forgot to say something before I ended that last section. Um, <coughs> I have had biblical errantists, I have had biblical errantists accuse some of these solutions to these alleged contradictions as being ad hoc or contrived. But that is not a valid objection. You see, what we're talking about here are alleged contradictions. A contradiction, as I said before, are two statements which are mutually exclusive. They both cannot be true. It is logically impossible for both to be true. Just, there is no possible world in which both statements are true at the same time and in the same sense and in the same way. If there is a claim that two <coughs> teachings of the Bible are contradictory, 
All you need to do is just pose a logically possible solution on how to reconcile the two. And if you do that, then both verses, both passages could both be true. It's logically possible for them both to be true. But some of these resolutions actually are founded in good exegesis. Some a lot I, I've noticed that a lot of alleged contradictions that atheists, skeptics, and you know, even very liberal Christians bring up stem just from not interpreting one of the passages correctly. We, we saw that with James chapter 2. They took a verse of James chapter 2 out of context, and out of context, it looks like it's contradictory. It looks like it contradicts Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 9. But when James chapter 2 is understood in its context, then there is no contradiction. They're, they're, they're using faith, justification by faith. James is, Paul is saying... We're de we're declared innocent by God by just by having faith in Him, and James is saying, "Hey, if you've really done that, if you've really placed your faith in Jesus Christ, how are you going to show it unless you do good works?" And also, I mean, go beyond James chapter two, and you you see that James is actually dealing uh, with the pro he's writing to a a li uh, licentious church. They're a church. You say, "Oh well, we believe in God, so we can live however we want." So, oftentimes, it's just a matter of correct exegesis. And, but in cases like, uh, you know, some of the, some of the differences between the uh, resurrection accounts and the Gospels, uh, where we don't really, we don't really know the answer, there, I think it's just sufficient to posit a logically possible uh, answer. But let, let's let's now look at Proverbs chapter 26 verse 4 and Proverbs chapter 26 verse 5. These verses are literally back to back. This <laughs> these two verses say, "Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes." Answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be just like him. I mean, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be just like him. Proverbs 26.4 Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Proverbs 26.5 Skeptics bring these two verses up as an example of a contradiction. Now, on one level, I, I understand, okay? We have do not answer a fool, answer a fool. These seem to be clear-cut contradictory commands. You 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 either can't you either answer a fool or you don't, but you can't do both at the same time. But in another sense, you have to wonder since these verses are right next to each other, you have to kind of assume utter stupidity on the part of the author to think that he wrote down a sentence and then immediately forgot what he just said and then said something completely contradictory to it. And by the way, Peter Enns brings this up in his, uh, in his book, uh, Inspiration and Incarnation. He, br he brings this up, and he deals with the whole issue of what the book of Proverbs is about. Um, and I, Proverbs, none of the Proverbs are meant to be, or at least most of them, maybe some of them are, but mo I would say most, maybe, maybe all, are not, absolutes. They're not absolute truths. They're not 
universally true for all people at all times and all places. Now, what I mean by that is not that they're relatively true, not that, oh, it's true for me, but not for you. I, what I'm saying is, is that they are true generally. They're rules of thumbs, so to speak. So, um, I remember being bothered by the proverb, um, I can't remember which one, but it says, uh, bring up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. And I'm, th and I'm thinking, I can think of many people who departed from the way they were brought up. Uh, either, you know, either they were raised Christians and they became apostates later on, or just in moral behavior, you know, they, they turned into blights on, they turned into blots on society. They became really terrible persons, even though they're, even though their parents did everything to raise them right, teach them how to behave, teach them how to be good people, uh, law-abiding citizens, and, and, uh, right and wrong. Uh, so I'm like, this is, uh, how, how, how can the author say this? Well, there's no problem if it's taken as a general truth. Generally speaking, if you raise a child right, he'll turn out right. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, life is complex, and the book of Proverbs are just offering general rules of thumb that, you know, if you, if you follow the advice set out in the book of Proverbs, things are more likely to go well for you than if you ignored them. Um, so, uh, for example, there's a proverb that says that, you know, if you work hard, you'll get wealthy, but if you're lazy, you'll be impoverished. Well, that's, that's true. There are, there are, we can think of many success stories, which people started from the bottom, and they worked their way up, and they became a CEO of a, of an organization, but, um, there are also people who, you know they're doing everything they can. They're working multiple jobs, and they're they're just they they just are just barely making ends meet. They're not lazy. No no one would no one would consider them lazy. They're trying as hard as they can, um, but you know things are just not working out for them. It's a general rule of thumb, and so likewise, I take Proverbs twenty six four and Proverbs twenty six five to be general rules of thumb. Um, that you need to, as Peter Enns says, we need to, we need to use wisdom to apply the wisdom we learn from the book of Proverbs. We need wisdom to know when to obey some of these, uh, um, uh, not, not commands, but, uh, admonitions, I, I would say, or guidelines. So, do not answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool according to his folly. There, there's reasons given for why you should and should not answer a fool. Why should you not answer a fool according to his folly? Well, the answer is, you'll be just like him. I can think of many examples on the internet in which people were just, I mean, trolls. They're either, trolls are just really piece of crap human beings who are just really ugly to people because of whatever reason. And, you know, I'm tempted to respond in kind. I'm, I'm tempted to be just as nasty in return and, and use all sorts of sarcastic and use my, my witty mind to, to put them down. What would happen if I did that? What would happen if I gave in to that temptation? I would be answering a fool according to his folly, and I would become just like him. And this verse has actually rung in my head many times when I was tempted to do that. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get off the thread. I'm, not, I'm just going to walk away. This person is uh, this per this person is no one to me. I, I don't I don't even know who this person is, and I'm not going to respond. But you also have answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes.
<clears throat> so here I, I think we have the problem of people pushing bad ideas, false ideas, and if they're left unanswered, then these people, the, the people spouting the nonsense, will think that the reason you don't refute them is because their arguments are just unassailable. They're just irrefutable, and they're just so brilliant, and you're so stupid for believing what you do. So what you need to do is you need to respond to it. You need to you need to refute the nonsense. Um. So you need to apply wisdom. When should you? respond to a fool. There are times in which it's just good to stay silent. There are times in which it's, uh, you know, it would behoove you to respond because you don't want foolish people thinking they're wise in their own eyes. I like how gotquestions.org answered this question in an article uh, addressing the same issue. They write, quote, whether we use the principle of verse 4 and deal with a fool by ignoring him, or obey verse 5 and reprove a fool, depends on the situation. In matters of insignificance, it's probably better to disregard him. In more important areas, such as when a fool denies the existence of God, Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, verse 5 tells us to respond to his foolishness with, with words of rebuke and instruction. To let a fool speak his nonsense without reproof encourages him to remain wise in his own eyes and possibly gives credibility to his folly in the eyes of others. In short, in negligible issues, we should just ignore fools, but in issues that matter, they must be dealt with so that credence will not be given to what they say. Now, I would, uh, we're going on an hour here. I would like to just take some time to address uh, contradictions or alleged contradictions in the crucifixion and resurrection narratives in the gospel. And by the way, this is a good time for me to once again plug my YouTube series, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's on YouTube. It can also be found on the Cerebral Faith website, cerebralfaith.net. Just go to the homepage, click on the YouTube logo, uh, third box to the right, and scroll down until you see the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Click on that, and you'll have all the videos on one page. There's, it's, it's a 12-video series. I get really, really in-depth uh, in the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and responding to objections from skeptics and and the like, and so on. <clears throat> um, I hope to someday do like a live stream presentation like I plan on doing with uh, the primeval, you know, history of the Bible, Genesis 1-11. to I, I plan on someday doing a live stream presentation unpacking the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus in sort of, a, in sort of an overview fashion because it, it occurs to me that while some people would be very interested in going in look, looking at every single argument for the crucifixion for the historicity of Jesus's death by crucifixion every argument for the historicity of the empty tomb every argument for how we know that the disciples claimed and believed the that uh, Jesus appeared to them postmortem uh, and, and all that some people just they may want like just a 1 hour lecture not only that, but that invites a live Q&A. 
I got the idea from watching Michael Icona's uh, presentation on the resurrection on the Christian Think Tank Facebook page. Uh, he, he, it was a free event. Um, it was live. Uh, and he unpacked the case for the resurrection of Jesus in that live presentation. And I was like, yeah, you know what, maybe I ought to do that at, at some point. To just kind of point people to a one-stop shop, you know, a one-hour video with a 30-minute Q&A portion using StreamYard and Google Slides. And uh, if anybody watches that video and they want to go deeper, then they can then they can watch the 12-part. Uh, it's virtually a free online course on this topic. But, yeah, go, ch go check that out. But... Let's talk about the alleged contradictions that are, that skeptics bring up between the gospel accounts. First, I want to say contradictions are not a point against the history, the case for the resurrection. And I bring this up in the the YouTube series. I bring this up in my book, My Redeemer Lives: Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. Um, I don't. Um, even if what we're going to be talking about really were contradictions, I mean, it would mean biblical inerrancy is false. But it would not disprove the historicity of the claim that Jesus died and rose from the dead after being crucified. Um, because in the historical methodological in the in the historical methodology I use, which I learned from Gary Habermas and Michael Icona and William Lane Craig, I don't presuppose the biblical inerrancy. I don't even I don't presuppose divine inspiration of the New Testament documents. I don't even presuppose their general reliability. Instead, I apply various tests of authenticity that historians apply to many other historical works, like the criterion of embarrassment, the criterion of multiple attestation, the criterion of dissimilarity, and so on. And if certain places of the Gospels or the New Testament epistles pass one or more of these tests, then that makes it far more likely that the said instance is historical. And we have more certainty in believing it happened than we would have in the absence of one of these. And the core of the resurrection narrative is true. Jesus died, Jesus' Jesus's tomb was empty, at least one woman went to the tomb, uh, and, the, and the tomb Jesus was laid in was a, a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, um, and, and after Jesus' tomb was found empty, he appeared alive from the dead to his disciples and some others, including Peter. That's the core of the story. And the Gospels are completely in harmony on, on the core. It's only in the peripheral details that they seem to be in error. And, it, <clears throat> and uh, as Detective J. Warner Wallace points out in his book, Cold Case Christianity, this is exactly what you would expect from eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts are, are typical in being in harmony in the most important, the most central details, but, you know, being different or even contradictory in the, you know, the peripheral details. So, anyway, with that said, let's look at some alleged contradictions and whether they really are contradictions. Um, again, not going to address every single one <coughs> that a skeptic ever brought up. <clears throat> but I'm going to look at some. One, 
Did Jesus carry his own cross or not? In Mark 15:21, Matthew 27:32, and Luke 23:26, Jesus gets help from Simon of Cyrene to carry his own cross when he's so weak, he stumbles and cannot carry it anymore. In John 19:17, Jesus carries his own cross the entire way. This one is actually pretty easy to answer. I think it's clear that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the instance of Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus carry his own cross, while John simply omits it. John just simply skips over that part about Simon helping Jesus. An incomplete report is not a false report. Now, why did John do that? Why did John skip over that part? I don't know. Almost everyone agrees that John's gospel was the last one to be written. It's very likely that John knew that the other Gospels already existed, and they recorded that detail, and so John just chose to omit it because he knew people would read about it in the other Gospels. J. Warner Wallace, in his book Cold Case Christianity, gives an example of the... Uh, by the way, this is, this is, I think, a very plausible explanation for why the Gospel of John is so different from the Synoptics. Uh, in general, uh, in its content, is because John was just simply filling in the gaps. The other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they had circulated very widely. They were very uh, <coughs> widely known, read in churches. And so rather than uh, rehash details that had been gone over three times, John was like, I'm just going to talk about stuff you guys didn't. And uh, in Cold Case Christianity, J. Warner Wallace gives an example of this happening in one of his interviews with witnesses to a burglary. He says that they all gave their version of what happened, but then uh, Detective Wallace realized that there was one more witness that he didn't know about. Uh, standing, you know, several feet away, she came up to him and she gave her report of what happened. Now, because she was somewhere nearby and listening to the testimonies of the other witnesses, she omitted almost everything the other witnesses said, and she simply added to those details, because she saw no, no need to rehash them. And so, <clears throat> J. Warner Wallace argues, and, and I agree, that the Apostle John was probably doing the same thing. He chose to mention things that the Synoptic Gospels did not, um... For example, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Next alleged contradiction. 2. When crucified, Jesus' cross had an inscription, but there, were sev there are several things that the sign says. Just what did this sign above Jesus' head say? Which one is correct? Mark 15.26 says, The King of the Jews. The inscription, The King of the Jews. Mark uh, Matthew 27.37 the inscription, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Luke 23.38, The inscription, This is the King of the Jews. John 19.19, 19, The inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. There are actually two different ways that all of these different descriptions could be true. For one thing, we know that the sign above Jesus' head had the description in multiple different languages. Perhaps the statement that Jesus is king of the Jews is worded differently in each of the different languages, and the gospel writers simply translate the wording of only one of those languages. Another explanation is that the description actually said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. 
but each of the descriptions in the Gospels is an impartial description. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. In that sentence, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, you can find parts of that whole full complete sentence in each of the Gospels. Mark 15.26, the King of the Jews. Matthew 27.37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Luke 23.38, this is the King of the Jews. John 19.19, 19, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. <clears throat> Each are giving an impartial uh, description of what the sign said, but the in reality, you know, the full sign said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So what we probably have here are simply impartial reports rather than contradictory reports. Next alleged contradiction in the resurrection narratives, or the crucifixion narratives. Some Gospels say that Jesus was crucified with two thieves. Some say both thieves cursed him. Some say one, one repented and asked Jesus to remember him as he went into his kingdom. In Mark, the two thieves are mentioned, but there's no conversation between them. In Matthew 27.44, the two thieves taunt Jesus. Both, both thieves taunt Jesus in Matthew 27. In Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 42, one thief taunts Jesus, but the other believes in Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now this one is a little more difficult to resolve. But one proposal I have read is that both thieves might have cursed Jesus initially. And then one of them, after seeing Jesus' love and compassion on the very people who were crucifying him, I mean, Jesus said, uh, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Perhaps the, the other thief was, was so moved uh, that he thought, this must be the Son of God after all. Um, you know, who else but God's Son could be so loving and forgiving towards people who do some, or who are doing something so extremely evil to him? Or, you know, uh, maybe he thought, that only the Son of God could have uh, such a superhuman ability to have that level of compassion on his enemies, and, and so he believed in Jesus. He's, and that's when the conversation, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. You know, it, it was a change of mind in the, in the midst of the moment. Um, and now, you know, of course, now Mark, he doesn't choose any, he doesn't include any conversation, so there's... <laughs> He just says Jesus was crucified next to two thieves, That's and he leaves it at that. So there's there's no details in Mark that would contradict either Matthew or Luke. The, 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 the apparent contradiction only exists between Matthew and Luke. Uh, but there is, a, there is a possible way both could be right. Next alleged contradiction. The crucifixion of Jesus is the central event of the Passion narrative, but the, pa the narratives don't agree on when the crucifixion occurred. Mark 15.25, Jesus was crucified on the third hour. John chapter 19, verses 14 to 15, Jesus was crucified on the sixth hour. And Matthew and Luke say, uh, well, I mean, they don't state when the crucifixion starts, but the sixth hour occurs during the crucifixion. Out of, out of all of the alleged con uh, contradictions, I find this one 
to be the most forceful. I feel the most force out of this one. Nevertheless, there are some answers that some Christian apologists have given, and they do sound somewhat plausible. Uh, a, a good while back, uh, several years ago, I read an article about biblical inerrancy and the historical case for Jesus' resurrection on reasonablefaith.org. William Lane Craig, uh, reasonablefaith.org, unless if, if you've been living under a rock, is William Lane Craig's website. It was in the Q&A section of his website, um, his question of the week, which, by the way, if you didn't know, I have a, a similar thing going on at cerebralfaith.net. If you have questions, email me at cerebralfaith at gmail.com, and I'll respond in a blog post uh, just like William Lane Craig does. And in fact, I'll probably have a more, uh, it's probably more likely I'll get to you than he does, because he gets a whole bunch of them, um, because he's, he's one of the most influential Christian philosophers in the world. And I'm not. So, <laughs> I have... I, there you go. But uh, this, is what, this is what Craig wrote. Quote, All the sources agree that Jesus was crucified on Friday. What is in dispute is whether Passover was on Thursday or Friday. The Gospels seem to suggest that Jesus' last supper with the disciples on Thursday night was a Passover meal. John agrees that Jesus did share a last supper with his disciples on Thursday night in the upper room prior to his betrayal and arrest. But John says that the Jewish leaders wanted to eliminate Jesus before the Passover meal began Friday night. So was Passover on Thursday or Friday? That's the whole dispute. I hope this puts the issue in perspective for you. End quote. Dr. William Lane Craig went on to say, quote, One possibility is that John has moved the Passover to Friday to make Jesus' death coincide with the slaughter of the Passover lambs in the temple. But maybe not, since there were competing calendars in use in first century Palestine. The sacrifices may have been made on more than one day. The Pharisees and people from Galilee reckon days as beginning at sunrise and ending at the following sunrise. But Sadducees and people from Judea reckoned days as beginning at sunset and ending with the next sunset. In our modern age, we adopt what I think is the rather weird convention that the day begins in the middle of the night, at midnight, and goes until the next midnight. Well, this difference in reckoning days completely throws off the dating of certain events." End quote. Dr. William Lane Craig went on to say, quote, Passover lambs were offered on the 14th of the month of Nisan, according to the Galilean reckoning. The 14th of Nisan begins about 6 a.m. on the day that we call Thursday. But for the Judean, 14 Nisan does not begin until 12 hours later, about 6 p.m. on our Thursday. So when the Galilean, following Jewish regulations, slays the Passover lamb on the afternoon of 14 Nisan, what day does he do it? Thursday. But when the Judean offers his lamb in sacrifice on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, what day is it? Friday. When night falls, he then feasts on the lamb, by his reckoning, on 15 Nisan. Thus, in order to meet the demands of both Galilean Pharisaical sensibilities and of Judean Sadducean sensibilities, the temple priesthood would have had made Passover sacrifices on both Thursday and, sac and, fr and Friday. Jesus, as a Galilean, 
knowing of his impending arrest, chose to celebrate the Passover Thursday night, whereas the chief priests and scribes responsible for Jesus' arrest went by the Judean calendar, as John says. Although we have no evidence that Passover sacrifices were made on both days, such a solution is very plausible. The population of Jerusalem swelled to around 125,000 people during the Passover festival. It would be logistically impossible for the temple priesthood to sacrifice enough lambs <clears throat> for that many people between three, uh, 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock on one afternoon. They must have sacrificed on more than one day, which makes it entirely possible for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate the Passover Thursday night prior to his arrest." End quote. The next alleged contradiction. Jesus' last words before dying. Jesus' last words before dying are important, right? But no one seems to have correctly written them down. Matthew, Mark chapter 15, verses 34 to 37, and Matthew chapter 27, verses 46 to 50. Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But they use different Greek words for God. Matthew uses Eli, and Mark uses Eloi. Luke twenty three forty six. Jesus says, Father, into your into thy hands I commit my spirit. John nineteen thirty. Jesus says, It is finished. To tell us die. Now, <clears throat> this complaint seems to me rather petty. Um, just like with the sign above Jesus's head, why can't all of the wordings be correct? I mean, why can't it be like what you see in some Bible movies where Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he said, It is finished. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that it doesn't seem to me that we have contradictory accounts here. It seems to me like we have complementary accounts. And as far as the different words used for God goes, I mean, this is simply a paraphrase. In fact, most scholars, I mean, not just, and I'm not just talking about liberal scholars, liberal Christians, non-Christians like Bart Ehrman, I'm talking like even conservative evangelical scholars like Michael Lycona don't think that the gospel writers quoted Jesus verbatim. Like, if you read a New Testament in Greek, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said verbatim. If you got in a time machine and you went back, that's th those are exactly the same words in that order that you would hear G come out of Jesus' mouth. I mean, Jesus didn't speak Greek anyway. He most likely spoke Aramaic, but yeah. Uh, rather, they think the Gospel authors were more concerned with having a faithful representation of Jesus' sayings rather than the wording. In other words, the propositional content. I mean, you could... And I don't find that to be a problem. I know maybe some fundamentalists would find that to be a problem. They find a lot of things to be a problem that I don't. Uh... But, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you can say you can say something in a lot of different ways. I mean, just think of, uh, I mean, if you couldn't do that, then plagiarism would be necessary. I mean, if anybody's going to write on the same subject as someone else, they'd have to use the exact same words. And yet, they don't. They use their own words, even if they're talking about the same subject. Maybe there's similar wording because, hey, it's the same subject. Of course, there's going to be some uh, some overlap in, in what they say, but it's going to be different. And as far as I'm concerned, as long as, long as the, tr the truth, the essence 
of what Jesus said is accurately recorded, <coughs> um, then I don't I don't have a problem. I, you know, if Jesus said, um, "God, my spirit is coming to you," it, you know, it, it boots on the ground. If that's what Jesus said, rather than "Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit," you know, who cares? It means the same thing. Father, I'm I'm sen I'm sending my spirit to you. Or, or Lord God, my Father, I'm I'm my spirit is coming into your hands. If that's what he actually said, rather than verbatim, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So, the fact that Matthew records Jesus use, calling, you know, saying Eli, and Mark uses Eloi, it's it's not a problem. <clears throat> Next, who visited Jesus's tomb? Mark 16.1 says three women visited Jesus' tomb, Mary Magdalene, a second Mary, and Salome. Matthew 28.1 says two women go over to Jesus' tomb, Mary Magdalene and another Mary. Um, Luke 24.10 says at least five women visit Jesus' tomb, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and other women. John chapter 20 verse 1 says one woman visits Jesus' tomb, Mary Magdalene. She later fetches Peter, another disciple. I think what we have here is a group of women going to the tomb, five of them, including Mary Magdalene, who is always named, Joanna, Salome, and Jesus' mother. John focuses on Mary John focuses on Mary alone, likely for dramatic effect, but he, he knows of other women. He knows other women went there. How do we know this? Well, this is implied in Mary's words. They have taken the, quote, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. John chapter 20, verse 2. Confer John chapter 20, verse 13. John simply chooses to zero in on Mary and not mention the other women. So, next one. What time was it when the women got to the tomb? Mark 16.2, they arrive after sunrise. Matthew 28.1, they arrive at about dawn. Luke 24.1, it is early dawn when they arrive. John chapter 20, verse 1, it's dark when they arrive. Is this really a contradiction? I mean, to me, it seems like this is, just, this is like the optimist and the pessimist arguing over whether the glass is half full or half empty. Clearly, this was very early in the morning, maybe about around 5 to 6 a.m. At that time, it was mo probably mostly dark, and the sun was just beginning to rise. It's like the, the morning equivalent of twilight. Therefore, I think all of the descriptions are accurate. They just describe it differently from different perspectives, like the optimist and the pessimist describing the amount of water in the glass. There are many more alleged contradictions that biblical skeptics bring up. I might do another episode on this one day to address ones that uh, I haven't touched upon in this episode, but this podcast episode is an hour and 25 minutes long already, so uh, I'll just leave any other ones for another time. <coughs> Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Uh, if you would like to support this ministry financially, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. 
You can also access the Cerebral Faith Patreon page by going to cerebralfaith.net and scrolling down, and you'll see you'll see several boxes on the Cerebral Faith homepage, where uh, where it'll take you to the blog, the blog page, the podcast page, the YouTube video page, also the 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 page that shows the videos for all of my debates. But uh, you see the Patreon logo, click on that, and it will take you to Cerebral Faith's Patreon page, and there you'll see all of the different. Uh, uh, goodies that you'll get uh, in response in return for uh, being a financial backer. You get early access to the podcast episodes, early access to the blog posts, early access to the YouTube videos. You get um, on the highest tier, the twenty dollar tier. You get all of you get all of my books in audiobook form, and these are patron exclusive audiobooks. You can't get them. Anywhere else, not on Audible, not on uh, Christian Audio, or anywhere. <coughs> and um, it would be very much appreciated because I uh, I wouldn't be able to have expanded cerebral faith to the extent that I have without your donations. And speaking of patrons, I want to give a shout out to my patrons. First I gotta bring them up. I, uh, I have got to get in the habit of pulling up the relationship manager. I could do it from memory, but I just don't want to leave anyone out. Um, Zach Miller, Slam RN, James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. Thank you guys for supporting the Cerebral Faith Ministry. You, you are awesome. Um, and thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Peace out. I will see you next time, and keep using the brains that God gave you.